0: You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, division of Endocrinology and Metabolism. University of California San Diego and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Diabetic retinopathy is the
1: leading cause of new cases of blindness and loss of vision. However, early detection and aggressive treatment can reduce this devastating complication. Joining us to discuss diabetic retinopathy is internationally known ophthalmologist in San Diego, California, Dr. Paul Tornambi. Dr. Tornambi, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Steve. How many people with diabetes are affected with diabetic retinopathy, and what is the typical time frame in terms of developing this complication?
2: Well, if you've had diabetes for about 20 years and you're under fairly good control, the odds are 90% of you will have some form of diabetic retinopathy, but that's a spectrum from very minimal disease to significant disease, and so usually tell patients that the incidence of diabetic retinopathy depends on, number one, how long they've had diabetes for the duration, and number two is how good their metabolic control has
1: been. What are the different categories of diabetic retinopathy? I know from many of us don't remember too much from our medical school ophthalmology rotation. Well,
2: basically, there are two broad categories. One is non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which we usually refer to as background diabetic retinopathy, which is manifested by uh, dot blot hemorrhages, microaneurysms, exudates, and the the primary reason for visual loss in these cases is retinal ischemia or what we call macular edema. And the the second type is proliferative diabetic retinopathy. In this case, the ischemia has increased to such a point that uh, certain cytokines like VEGF are elaborated, which stimulates new vessel proliferation. They're abnormal, spider-like vessels. They bleed and hemorrhage and cause scarring and retinal detachment.
1: Well, I think an important question is, what kind of symptoms are patients getting during the development and progression of diabetic retinopathy from non-proliferative to proliferative?
2: Well, the scary thing is they may not have any symptoms. And uh, if people have been very poorly uh, controlled and haven't seen their eye care physicians and their, their uh, medical doctors, they'll sometimes present with some floaters in one eye, An examination of both eyes will reveal extremely advanced disease. So they may have no symptoms at all. The more common ones would be floaters, which would represent uh, vitreous hemorrhaging, or they could have generalized blurred vision, which would be a manifestation of diabetic macular edema, which may be very gradual. Uh, those patients might also notice some distortion in their reading vision.
1: Any condition where there are no symptoms in the early stages really requires screening. For most of our listeners, they're primary care physicians, they may be endos. What's the recommendation for screening? Well,
2: for an insulin-dependent diabetic, uh, we we would recommend that they be checked 5 to 10 years after the onset of their disease. If they develop the disease when they're 7 or 8 usually you want to check them somewhere around puberty because that's when the disease can really take off. As far as the type 2s, they should be examined at the time uh, the diagnosis is made, shortly after that. As a matter of fact, sometimes the eye care physician will be the one who makes the uh, diagnosis before it becomes uh, metabolically noticeable
1: to the patient. Do they need to see a specialist like yourself who is a retinologist, uh, can they go to an optometrist who dilates the eyes, et cetera?
2: Well, I think that the modern-day optometrists are, are better and better trained. And the basic findings of diabetic retinopathy, microaneurysms, hemorrhages, cotton wool spots, exudates, uh, those can be recognized by anyone who's trained to do a dilated examination.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ND. XM one sixty, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman and I'm speaking with Paul Tornambi about diabetic retinopathy. Paul, how can healthcare professionals help their patients prevent or reduce their chances for getting diabetic retinopathy?
2: Well, Steve, I think that good medical control is the primary thing that we want to see done. A hemoglobin A one C in the six to seven range, good blood pressure control, uh checkup of any renal disease, lipid management and weight management, and then, of course, diet and exercise, but most importantly, to be sure that they are screened every year or two years uh, by eye care providers, and then once the diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy is made, to have a uh, retina specialist evaluate that
1: patient. I've heard you say several times when you're speaking at a lot of the patient conferences that we organize that if you get a yearly dilated eye exam, your chances of going blind are virtually nil.
2: Well, that's true. Uh, The only exception might be that patient whose diabetic state deteriorates very rapidly, let's say, to renal failure. But for the most part, if you are in good general health, in good general control, and you have an eye exam once a year... The, the odds of you going blind from diabetic retinopathy become very slim.
1: Excellent. Walk us through what a typical retinal evaluation consists of.
2: When they, when they come to our office, we, we always dilate them. And, and diabetics should know that to get a proper eye exam, they must be dilated. Uh, we then like to take uh, fundus photographs to document what pathology is present. And we like to scan the fundus so we have an area of the retina is possible uh, documented. If there is evidence of vascular disease uh, that's significant, we might do a fluorescein angiogram whereby we inject a very benign food coloring into the vein and take photographs of the eye. And then finally, if we suspect that there might be swelling of the retina, we'll do optical coherence tomography uh, better known as uh, OCT.
1: Yeah, I know that's a, a relatively new way of measuring edema, has, which has really helped therapy. Well, let's talk about the therapeutic uh, approaches to diabetic retinopathy from, you know, pre proliferative to proliferative.
2: Well, I think the, the standard therapy is uh, laser photocoagulation, both for uh, non proliferative uh, diabetic retinopathy if there is macular edema. And then uh, for uh, extremely advanced non-proliferative disease, uh, we'll sometimes recommend photocoagulation there. And then we still use the uh, National Eye Institute criteria for high risk before applying uh, panretinal photocoagulation for proliferative disease. Well,
1: what what is that recommendation?
2: Well, basically, if the patient has any... But in general terms, I think that that holds.
1: Well, Paul, you've always told me that the way we treat diabetic retinopathy is pretty archaic. You're actually destroying the eyes. What are some of the side effects? I
2: think the first thing that's really important that the patients have to know is that this therapy has been proven in clinical trials and works. And if it's indicated, even though it may have some side effects, it is certainly better than uh, the the major side effects of laser uh is loss or decrease of peripheral vision and night vision uh occasionally people will get uh diabetic macular edema uh from the laser but that's that's rare and if the laser is very ex- extensive uh sometimes the uh, they can there can be pupil abnormalities where the pupil is dilated but for the most part most diabetics Uh, will enjoy relatively good peripheral vision and uh, central vision. Uh, They'll be able to drive, they'll be able to read, they'll be able to watch TV. Um, There there may be some loss of peripheral vision, but it's a small price to
1: pay. Well, I have type 1 diabetes, and you've lasered me several times, and I learned about you know, night vision the hard way. When I went to a movie theater, I sat on this one woman's lap by accident. You know, she's holding a bag of popcorn as well. Well, I know that you've always mentioned about uh, our current therapy is primarily laser. Um, let's take this moment to talk about some exciting new stuff that you've spoken about at other conferences about what's on the horizon for preventing and treating retinopathy.
2: I'll tell you one thing that I think is really important. Uh, many diabetic patients tell you that they hemorrhage when they wake. They notice the hemorrhage when they wake up in the morning, and I think a high percentage of these people have sleep apnea. So one thing that I that I do when I get that history from a diabetic is to ask them to see their uh, primary care physician uh, to arrange for a sleep study. The mainstay for Uh, proliferative disease that gets out of control is vitrectomy, where we go inside the eye, remove the vitreous jelly, and remove those uh, blood vessels. But what we're doing uh, now is we're using a VEGF inhibitor, uh, usually Bevacizumab or Avastin.
1: Well, Paul, let me interrupt. Explain what VEGF is.
2: VEGF is a cytokine. It stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. And this is one of the major contributors to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. It's what, it's what stimulates the blood vessels to grow, and this, this substance is elaborated in response to hypoxia. The reason the laser works is that it improves the, uh, the oxygen state of the retina and decreases VEGF. So now what we're doing is we're injecting these uh, VEGF inhibitors into the eye Uh, shortly before a vitrectomy, three or four days. And what this does is it basically makes the proliferative disease, uh, go into regression for about three months. And we can then go into these eyes and do the vitrectomy and have much less bleeding and much less postoperative, uh, complications. So this is, this is really a major breakthrough. In, in our management of diabetic retinopathy.
1: Well, when do you think this will become uh, the standard of care?
2: Since we first talked about it a couple, three years ago, there have probably been several hundred papers uh, presented in peer-reviewed journals talking about the advantages of uh, and Some people are even recommending it before uh, doing panretinal photocoagulation for very succulent uh, vessels to minimize the chances of, of post So I think that this is the standard of care
1: now. Well, I think that's so important you mentioned that because our listeners are are listening from across the United States and probably around the world. And uh, it's important for them to know so they can seek out the best therapy for their patients. Well, I would like to thank our guest, ophthalmologist in San Diego, California, Dr. Paul Tornambi. Dr. Tornambi, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure, Steve.
0: Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com.
3: What are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas. ...to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose... ...by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion... ...by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here... (laughs) ...and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important... ...because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes... It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com DIA.